Senor Sack, Gabe Rivera, was perhaps one of the greatest defensive players ever to play football for San Antonio ISD. Rivera, class of 1979, was a parade All-American defensive linebacker and offensive tight end for Jefferson High School. Rivera led his team to a co-district championship in 1977. Rivera was a hot blue chip prospect and recruit in college circles. He chose Texas Tech University and reached national recognition there. Rivera was converted to a defensive tackle for the Red Raiders. He started all four seasons at Texas Tech and played in 40 straight games from 1979 to 1982. At six foot three inches tall and 230 pounds in high school, Rivera grew to nearly 300 pounds in college. Despite his weight, Rivera was able to complete a 40 yard dash in a blazing 4.8 seconds as a defensive tackle. It was at Texas Tech he earned the nickname Senor Sack. One of the most feared defensive linemen in college football, Rivera compiled 321 career tackles, 34 tackles for loss, 14 sacks, 11 pass deflections, and 6 fumble recoveries. Rivera amassed 105 tackles in the 1982 season for the Red Raiders, a school record that still stands today for most tackles in one season by a defensive tackle. He garnered consensus First Team All-America honors his senior season in 1982. Senor Sack was the first defensive tackle taken in the 1983 NFL first round draft by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Rivera played for the infamous Steel Curtain defense. Good morning, good morning. Good morning to the Well and the Well Cafe. I'm thrilled to be with y'all this morning. Uh, I just have to say, whoo, worship team, sound team, AV team, come on, come on, man, man, I got to recover a little bit, just give me a minute, I got to recover, <laughs> oh, man, it's good to be here, um, Gabe Rivera, so Gabe Rivera had a very prolific high school and college career. Huge. All the stats, all the accolades, drafted in the first round, and he was drafted to hopefully be uh, part of that steel curtain defense. Mean Joe Green, he was supposed to replace Mean Joe Green, if you know who Mean Joe Green was. Um, but during his rookie year, on his way home from practice, he decided to get into his fast, fast, fast car without a seatbelt, intoxicated. And he crossed that center line and he hit the oncoming vehicle and no one in the oncoming vehicle was, was hurt, but Gabe Rivera was thrown from his vehicle, would change his life forever, he'd never play football again, he would never walk again. We'll say a little bit more about his story a little later. I bring his story up because we are week three of our homecoming series and the topic today is injured list injured list. And so you might think of, I think we can all recall some family friends that have had some sort of illness physically or some sort of major injury that derailed our sports dreams, be those dreams realistic or not, um, changed the course of our life in some cases. But think more in terms of our homecomings, our reunions, your 10, your 20, your 30 year if you've gone back to any of those and you expect to see certain people together, you look forward to seeing some people together and they're not together. Sometimes you find out why, sometimes you don't. You kind of talk, gossip amongst yourselves like, why aren't they, what, what happened? 
You expect to see certain people sometimes. You look forward to seeing certain people at some of those homecomings, at some of those reunions, and they're not there or they're there, but there's some shame. They're avoiding you. The, the encounter, the meeting doesn't go well. There's some brokenness maybe. Um, so this morning, we're talking about sin and brokenness. Pastor David left, left the country just in time for to avoid preaching on sin and brokenness and then we're gonna talk about experiencing loss next week. And it actually was a hallmark of the people called Methodists. If, if we, we think back about church history, in the days of John Wesley and George Whitfield, they preached about sin on the regular. We're kind of allergic to that word today in our culture, unfortunately. But uh, as men and women called of God, we, we have to grapple with sin and brokenness in our lives. And, and Pastor David set the table for us nicely last week by talking about some of those misconceptions that are out there about what we do here, that we kind of pretend to have it all together. We pretend to be all right at peace. We pre pretend maybe put a better version of our lives forward than actually exists. Um, we put forward some false pretenses. And if we do nothing this morning but dispel all that, then our time will have been wisely spent. Because I, I want to remind us that question that's behind this series is how are we a new church for new people in our community? And if our witness is going to be good and authentic and true, then we have to be real about what we're doing here and about what this is. That this is a house for sinners. This is a house for the broken. <laughs> that, that we come here fallen short of God's grace, but we are known and loved anyway. That we are here called to grow and mature towards the likeness of Christ who made us and who saves us. That that's what this place is about. And it's important for us to share our stories with each other. And a lot of us probably don't think we have real mountain moving, moving stories. Like we, we maybe know of those stories, but I'm convinced, I'm convinced each and every one of us the most effective form of evangelism we can employ to reach new people is in our willingness to meet people where they are and be vulnerable and open about our own sinfulness, about our own brokenness and how the only hope we have in dealing with any of it that we found is in Jesus. So I wanna be a little confessional with you this morning. I haven't been with you long, still getting to know each other a little bit. Um, so I hope this is, doesn't come as a shock to you, but uh, I'm a sinner. Pastor Shea is a sinner. Like, I'm really stubborn and can be very, be very uncompromising. I can be very impatient. I can be slow to listen and quick to speak and quick to give you my two cents about what I think about this or that. Um, I have a hard time like resting on good work and a job well done. And like if I've, I've done my best, I've put all my energy and effort into it. I'm still like, I play like this self-critical game with myself that there could have been something I could have done better. There was something I should have changed about this or that. Like when I'm working with Lindsay Kay and doing things we're supposed to be doing, right? Instead of always get the job done, I, I complain about why we're doing what we're doing now. Or sometimes I'll help Lindsay get the job done, but internally I'm like stewing on why this is such a waste of time and I, I should be doing other things and this and that. Like that. I experience unrighteous anger towards myself and others when I play sports sometimes. 
Sometimes you just get fouled. No, anybody relate? Like, and it's not good. It's not healthy. It's, it's unrighteous anger. Like, it, there's nothing good about my feelings towards the, those folks at, at that point and that, at that time. Nothing good about it. Nothing good. I have a propensity to justify my need to watch all the sports. All of them. Like, instead of help with the groceries or help walk Max. Like, I, I, I have to justify doing other things. Which, by the way, current events, this is a total tangent and aside. He took his first few steps. Ooh, this week. It's kind of that trust walk. He sort of like trust walk fall. It's not, he can't really quite get up yet by himself and do that. But that was cool. That was just a day before yesterday. Um, and because I spend a lot of time with Max, I don't get to watch all the shows that I enjoy watching on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime. And I have to admit, I was a little convicted in preparing this message for you in that I don't know it's good that I watch all the shows that I watch. Oops. You know? With the proliferation and escalation of, of the vulgarity and, and the sex and the violence in all the major shows, many of which I enjoy watching. Like, I like to think I can respect the story. I, I, I stay at a distance. I, I can appreciate the directorial um, vision and, and, and the amazing performances. And it co- causes me to think critically and all these things. And I like to think like I'm not negatively affected, but I don't know. I don't know. Is it somehow negatively affecting my spirit? Is it somehow negatively affecting how I view other people? I don't, I don't know. So the list could go on. <laughs> the list could go on. Um, but I'll stop there for now. I'll let the confession stop there for now as we all gonna get convicted this morning because we, we're back in the book of James. James chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, feel free and open them. Um, We're in page 1883 of the Blue Bibles, 1883 of the Blue Bibles. Or if you have an app, feel free, or it'll be on the screens. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Strap on, here we go. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. So James begins by saying the problem here that we're dealing with, the problem here is, is my problem. It's my problem and it's your problem. It's not our neighbor's problem. It's not our group's problem. Whatever group we identify with, be it family, be it church group, be it whatever group, socioeconomic group, whatever. Whatever collective that sometimes we identify with, this is about you and this is about me. The problem is the aim of our desire. 
the aim of our desire. Don't, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Like there's this sense that we're, we're consumed sometimes with our selfish ambitions and we're, we're focused so much on ourselves and the, the ways in which we utilize and depend on ourselves to the degree that God isn't part of the picture. We're just destined to be divisive. We're just destined to quarrel. We're destined to fight because ultimately that game is just a game of competing self-interest. It's my wants against your wants. And so, so James is saying the problem is the aim of our desire. We can think about sin sometimes this way as if, if, if God's perfect will is the target that we're shooting at with our lives, then the degrees in which we miss that target, the degrees to which we miss, we call that sin. So James is saying the problem right now is y'all, y- y'all aren't even aimed right. You aren't even aimed at the target. You're disoriented, you're staring at something else, you're focused on yourself, you're focused on other things, you're not even aiming right now at God's will. Your desires are a mess. And Pastor David often talks about how relationships are so important for us to mature and and grow, right? And you think about the parties involved in a relationship and, and how we're aimed. This is why like this conversation about faith is so important for people who begin to date because it's important to know are you even aimed in the right direction in your life? Because if, if you're not even aimed in the right way, then you're never going to end up together in the same place. But, but even if one's closer to the target and one's farther away, as long as you're aimed in the right way, at least you're together on the same path growing right? So it's important, James is saying, it's important to know that you're aiming right. Because here's the thing, if you're not even aimed right, then you can't even see. You're not even oriented to see the degree at which you miss. You can't even see that. So you can't even then identify the sin in your life, the way in which you miss the target. So how do we aim How do we do this? James says we need to do one thing, but it's got two little components. He says, we must ask God. That's what he says. We must ask God. Asking shows that kind of humility that we can't do it on our own. We're trusting the only source who can help us the most. You know, James says, God opposes the proud. He shows favor to the humble. There is great power, not great weakness here. There's great power in asking for help. Jesus says, ask, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. (laughs) He even goes on to say this in his Sermon on the Mount. Give to anyone who asks of you. Give to anyone who asks of you. Not give to anyone only if you've determined they deserve it. Not give to anyone only if they're family. Not give to anyone else only if you're, you're you know, got better things to do or, or things like that. Not, not give to your spouse only if they ask and you're not watching football or doing other things. Not give only unconditionally. God says, give to anyone who asks of you. I kind of want to weigh around that one. And to the degree that we think maybe that doesn't apply, that that's just just this lofty ideal that we're supposed to sort of aim at, I want to caution us a little bit here. That if we think that's impossible, that we can't do that, and we refuse those people who ask of us, can we be so sure that when we refuse what's asked of us, that we haven't refused 
the Lord, that we haven't refused to give to Jesus. If you remember the end of Matthew chapter 25, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did to me. So, so God's word says it's important to ask God. That's component one. But then we're supposed to ask with the right motives. Like James is concerned, you're asking for all the wrong reasons. You're, you're asking um, because you want some sort of person, personal pleasure. There's something really deep down that's not good that you want out of this thing. Um, you're asking to get ahead of others and, and, and to push them farther down. Or you're asking for forgiveness, but you're asking for forgiveness about the same thing over and over and over again. And he's concerned that, that our motives are off when we ask. So we have to ask God, we have to ask with the right motives, James says, if we're gonna try to orient our lives and aim at God's perfect will, that's really important for us to do. But there's this problem. And as I invite us all to think about those ways in which I think many of us clearly know how we miss the mark. As we think about those things, there's a problem, a daily problem that we have to deal with in the midst of this exercise, in the midst of, of trying to step in, in discipleship. There's a problem. There's, there's just this monster that we have to deal with. It's disorienting that tries to spin us around and blur our vision and, and make us dizzy so we can't, we never know if we're aiming right. And James calls that problem the world. <laughs> the world. James says, you who have chosen to be friends with the world have become an enemy of God. Jesus says in the gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, again, talking about our relationship with the world. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And then 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, one little verse here. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And then James will say at another point when, when talking about what true religion is, James gives us a nice clean definition of what he thinks true religion is. Caring for orphans, caring for widows, and try to remain unstained by the world, the world. So a very stark language with the way we're supposed to engage and encounter the world. And it seems a bit odd because shouldn't we be friends with the world for our witness to be effective so we can influence the world? And so we have to know what he means by the world and what the writers of scripture mean by the world because the world clearly doesn't mean like all of creation, all people, all society, all culture, all of our workplaces, right? It clearly doesn't mean that because then we just need to be monastics and reclusive and, and we'd have to go live in a commune somewhere. And clearly that's not what's, what's being... That's not the aim here. That's not the goal. So, so what do the writers of scripture mean by the world? And they often mean to the point that there's a collective, a people, a society, a culture of unbelief. If there's this kind of a collective of unbelief, sometimes that's referred to as the world or this longing to accumulate material things, material possessions, material wealth, and the, the way in which we maybe turn those into idols, that sometimes is called the world. 
Sometimes just general sinfulness. We think of those famous lists like the seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, lust, envy, wrath, gluttony, sloth. Paul talks about sins of the flesh in Galatians 5, right? Sometimes just general sinfulness is is described as the world. And I think the writers of Scripture would have a broader definition of the world if they were writing today. And there's a bit of irony in this. I was maybe spending too much time on Facebook um, going through my newsfeed when I saw these pictures that Robert Hinnerman posted. And we're going to click through these three images. They, they might be a little hard to see. But I think this is, again, broadening our definition of the world and the new ways we experience media, we exchange information, the ways in which we have supercomputers at our disposal and can get answers to questions at all times in any place. And what that's done to us, the way in which that sometimes disorients us, that there's a lot of lies spoken through those mediums, like the devil's toolbox is a lot larger, and, and navigating this is tough, like the boundaries and the accountability that, that need to be in place, and I'm having a hard enough time keeping myself in check with it, to be honest. I'm not to max yet, so I'll, I need help, so y'all are going to succeed and fail a bunch, and I'm going to have to lean on y'all and learn from y'all, because Whew, like, that is a problem. Being friends with the world and the degree in which if we're missing the mark more than we're hitting the target, I think it's fair to say we're friends with the world. James's word for us this, this morning is tough. It's challenging. But as big as the world is, the, as big of a monster as it can be, Jesus says as much. He, he says, um, in this world, you will have trouble, okay? And there's a thief out there who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. You will have trouble. Jesus promises us we're gonna have trouble, but, but, take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. And then prophetically, he says to Peter, seeing the kind of community of faith that Peter would begin to start and lead, he says, on this rock, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the degree in which we we need to know, we need to be aware of the adversary, we need to be aware of the monster that is the world, the ways in which we're tempted, the ways in which we are prone to miss the mark and sin. But it should not cause us to despair because, because God's word is true and he has promised that we will prevail when we take this step in faith. When we ask, he says we will receive we will prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. That doesn't mean we don't need to be pruned. That doesn't mean some ministries may not need to die. Some modern churches may, may not live 20 years from now. But as long as men and women, the community, the body of believers, us poor and needy are coming together and surrendering our lives to Christ, he says the gates of hell won't, can't touch you. Can't touch you. So we have no reason to despair We lean and trust on God because he's the only one who can steer us in the right direction. On our own, we're done. On our own, we are lost. On our own, we are utterly sinful and broken and there is no hope on our own. But Jesus says in Matthew 9, who does he come for? He comes comes for the sick, not for the healthy. He comes for the sick and not for the healthy. And in the context of this passage, you know, the Pharisees around think they kind of know the answers and think they're the healthy ones. 
and he puts it back on them. And some of us maybe think we're, too, we're healthier than we are as well, and that's okay. We are all in the same boat together. We can remind ourselves that we need a physician. That as we look at our lives and we aim at God's perfect will to the degree in which we understand and see the ways in which we miss the mark, we see that, we identify that, we ask for forgiveness, and God says that we are in right standing. That is the way in which we take the first step. We are aligned and we take the first step when we ask for forgiveness, but it doesn't stop at forgiveness. We sang the song about our freedom. We sing for our freedom and for our healing. There's more that happens in this life of discipleship that we are on than forgiveness. Many of you may remember that famous hymn of Charles Wesley, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Many of you may remember that. It's got like a hundred verses. It's, it's got a lot of verses, a lot of verses. Here, here's one of the verses talking about what God does. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Notice here, he, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Charles Wesley, John Wesley, you and I believe he breaks the power of sin, but he's saying something more here. He breaks the power of canceled sin, the sin that still lingers after forgiveness because there's, there's more that we need to get closer to that target. So that target gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we live into healing and the freedom that God gives us, that target gets bigger so we can hit it regularly with greater frequency. It is healing and freedom that we need. You might think of a court case and someone who's convicted of murder when they are given the innocent sentence, when they are declared innocent, they are in right standing before the law and the judge, but they gotta get let go. You got to take the shackles off and the handcuffs off. They are free. And so too, as men and women of God, we are called to recognize that we are sinners. We are, we are called to realize that, and, and that's important for our witness. And that we surrender our lives to God, we receive forgiveness, but it's so important that we don't stop there, that we, that we live into freedom, that we live into the healing that God gives us. And thanks be to God, I mean, we've got to own this for ourselves. There's a lot of self-inventory we've got to do. You know, there's, there's a lot of work we got to do. But thanks be to God, this, this all, our healing, doesn't exclusively depend on our efforts. James finishes his passage. We, we finished this passage today with him saying, draw near to God and he'll draw you near to you. And even before that, that God longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in you. So he's, he's already making that move. He's already giving us grace. He's already extending that. He jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us because he has made us for communion with him. He's already doing the work for us. We just have to believe, we have to ask, we have to receive. He's already doing that. He gives us the power to aim straight. He gives us the power to resist the devil. He gives us the power to transform our surroundings and be his people set apart, free from the clutches of the world. Gabe Rivera never, ever, ever got to realize his potential as an NFL football player. Never got to do it. Never got to do it. And he actually recently passed away. And his legacy, though, it's, it's amazing. His legacy isn't how he was a great high school football player. His legacy isn't how he was a great 
college football player. Gabe Rivera spent, spent the remainder of his life, the last 20 years, as a tutor for this inner city development center on the west side of San Antonio. It was a community education and rec center for troubled kids. And, and his legacy as being a tutor, a mentor, an inspiration for kids who were dealt a difficult hand in life. Gabe Rivera's story is an inspiring one. He saw the target. The target got better. He kept hitting the target. And many of us have similar stories. But you know, sometimes we think like we don't have that story. We don't have that like mountain moving story. But I'm telling you, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, you're wrong. I am convinced that the most effective form of evangelism that we can all employ, please hear me, that we can all employ to reach new people so new people find their home here is in our willingness to meet people where they are and be open and vulnerable about our own sinfulness, about our own brokenness and how the only hope, the only hope that we found is in Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, please forgive us. Forgive us for the ways in which we waste the grace you give us. Forgive us for the ways in which we just miss the mark. God, you were good. You were so good. And we so often make a mess of things. So God, forgive us and free us. Free us, Lord, for joyful obedience. So to the extent that we have injured people in our lives, family and friends, God, help us seek forgiveness. Help us repair those relationships because you have repaired and restored the relationship with us that we so often sever. God, if we are disoriented and confused and aiming in a different direction, help us. Help us ask for help so that we can aim right, so we can aim at your goodness, so that we can face you until that great and glorious day comes where we took so many steps towards you that we just see you face to face and there's no more room to miss. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.